וגם אני פתאום רואה את And welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolot. And it's a great privilege and honor to welcome all of you to Kolot featuring Howard Friedman or Howard Svee Friedman or Svee Friedman, depending what you call him. And today I am very privileged to have alongside myself, our very own from Columbus, Ohio, Howie Bagelman. So Howie, thank you for coming on to join us for this very interesting episode. Uh, I think I remember last time Howard and I were talking that he mentioned that you guys have relationships. So, you know, how did you get to know Howard? Where do you know him from? Yes, I've been in this role at Ohio Jewish community the past about eight years or so. But prior to that, I mean, not, not immediately prior, but soon but before that I was with the Orthodox Union, the OU, doing their advocacy work. There's mostly state government relations also, but also some other stuff. Um, federal and uh, international work, Israel advocacy, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Svi Friedman was obviously a member of, of the OU uh, leadership, um, lately leadership, as well as a very important member of Maryland, you know, Jewish community, where one of the states I was very focused on. Uh, and he also was, was very involved and is involved in APAC. So on all those three things, we, we, we interconnected and intersected at various points on, on each of those three places. So not from the golf course. That's not where you got to know. No, no, no. That's not, I got to watch him at work. Is really <laughs> as, as, as an Oscar, which is really impressive. Yeah, that's great. Now that's I can't best. speak to his golf game, but I can tell you his his Afghanistan game is really is really top notch. Now he's the top. I mean, one of the one of the nicest things about him is that there's nobody in the world that is too uh, that's beneath him to return a phone call or reply to an email or say hello. There's nobody that he doesn't feel that's important enough for him to acknowledge and treat like everyone else. Yeah, it's very special. You don't see that all the time in, in leadership, but he is one of those people who very much uh, walks the walk and talks the talk in a very special way. Absolutely. So now, let me tell you about our guest. Steve Freeman is a private equity investor. He is also a founding partner of Lanks Management, a hedge fund of funds. Mr. Friedman serves on the board of Sinclair Broadcast Group, one of the largest television broadcast groups in the country. He was the co-founder, publisher, and CEO of Watermark Press until its sale to Sendent Corporation. From 2006 until 2010, Mr. Friedman served as president and then chairman of the board of APAC. In 2007 and in 2009, Washington Life Magazine listed Mr. Friedman as one of the 100 most powerful people in Washington. From 2010 until 2012, he served as the president of the American Israel Educational Foundation, the charitable arm of APAC. He currently serves as chairman of the board of the Beth Medrash Gavoa Yeshiva in Lakewood, New Jersey, and as the honorary chairman of the board of the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America. He has served as chair of the board of the Associated Jewish Community Federation of Baltimore, president of the Baltimore Jewish Council, and as president of JTA, the global news service of the Jewish people. Mr. Friedman serves on a number of boards, among them Toro College and University System, Talmudical Academy, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Howard, thank you so much for joining Kolot. 
Sure, my pleasure to be here, Hillel. So, uh, you know, we wanted to, I guess for starting off, if you could tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, your upbringing, maybe a hobby or two. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, born here in Maryland, been, been here my whole life. And like, like I like to say, I already own a cemetery plot here in Baltimore. <laughs> so I'm a lifelonger, and uh, I come from a child of Holocaust survivors. My father was born in Poland and uh, came here after the war to New York, and right after he got married, moved down to Maryland. Uh, and uh, that's been my anchor of my life. I come from a very prominent Hasidic family, which, as you can see, I'm very Hasidic by looking at me. And uh, No tie. No tie, exactly. Those are my roots. And, uh, but I've been privileged. I studied for seven years at the, the Shiva in Baltimore, near Yisrael. Um, I was not the best of students. For those of you that know me, probably find that very hard to believe. But I always had a little interest in politics. So my late mentor, Rabbi Herman Newberger of Blessed Memory, would take me as a Shiva student to city council meetings because he realized I wasn't studying too much in the Beit Medrash. And I needed something else to do. I think you studied Hillel even. Uh, you actually studied there. That's why he became a rabbi along with Rabbi Morris, who I know from there, who was a great rabbi. But I was not the best studier. So instead, the rabbi took me the political route. That sort of sums it up. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And what better way to get into that? We have alongside uh, with us today to ask you questions, uh, the, the the head of Ohio Jewish Communities and our good dear friend, Columbus ver, Columbus's very own Howie Bagelman, who I want to turn it over to ask you a little bit more about your uh, political work and advocacy. Well, let me, before you turn it over, Hill, let me say I was honored to work with Howie 20 years ago when he worked for the Orthodox Union and in different parts of his career. Now Ohio is lucky to have him, but he's an incredible public servant and a, an incredible, incredible po- political macher. <laughs> Thank you. And I actually, uh, you mentioned my Neuberger, uh, a blessed memory. And I actually remember meeting him my, my first week on the job. I went to Maryland to do some work and uh, I got a, a walk around the yeshiva with, with, with Rich Eftel, actually. And then I got to meet my Neuberger and uh, he really was a very incredible, uh, you know, Oscan for the community. It was really, really amazing. Um, and he taught you well, obviously, because um, you've been doing this now for a long time. Um, I can't believe it's 20 years for me, at least, but uh, you've been doing it even longer, maybe a little bit. Uh, not so much longer, I don't think. Um, 37 years I've been doing this now. Really? Wow. In a s- systematic way since I started with Excellent. You. That's amazing. Um, so that's it. that leads to my first question really is, you know, it, I think since I've been doing this and Molly, you've been doing this, there's been a little bit of a, a public murmuring all the time about, is, are we seeing a change in support for Israel? Is it one party over another? Is it, is it really staying bipartisan? Is it, you know, you know, and this again, these, we have these conversations, you know, now it's, you know, there's a Republican senator holding up Iron Dome funding. You know, previously it was a couple of Democrats on, on, on the other side doing a couple of things. And you go back to, you know, the, the Bush year, the Reagan, you know, the first Bush year, the Reagan years, and then Carter and way back when. Um, have, have you really seen a change in the bipartisan commitment to Israel over that time? No. Yes and no. Right. I have not seen a change in the bipartisan commitment to Israel. The bipartisan commitment to Israel is still there strongly. 
right? You have people in the House, for example, led by Steny Hoyer, the, the majority leader, who are incredible leaders when it comes to Israel, right? Senator Menendez in the Senate, I could go on and on of our non-Jewish friends, especially who are incredible in the Democratic Party in the commitment to Israel. In the Republican Party, the, the same way from Kevin McCarthy and, for, and uh, Mitch McConnell. I mean, incredible friends uh, of Israel. Um, so the bipartisan support is still there. And even in the Democratic Party, where you could talk about the issues, the overwhelming majority of Democrats are still very pro-Israel. Now, that's the yes. That's, that's the no. The yes is, had there been more people on, 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 have come up and have been anti-Israel, especially the Democratic Party, the answer is yes. We have people on both sides. Rand Paul is single-handedly, like you just mentioned, responsible for stopping the billion dollars to Iron Dome that, that Israel should be getting now. Will we get it? Will Israel get it eventually? Yes, they will. Right? But Rand Paul is single-handedly as a Republican responsible for that. And his Republican colleagues in the Senate have tried to get him to pull back. And they haven't been and they haven't been successful. Right? But right, on the Democratic side, we have some members of Congress who aren't just anti-Israel, who are, in my opinion, opinion anti-Semitic. Right. And are saying anti-Semitic things. And they have to be called out for that as much as the Democrats, Democrats don't want that. Right. It's a minority in the party. I like most of the Democratic Party, but there is a minority in the party for us who is vehemently anti-Israel that borders on anti-Semitism and in some case is anti-Semitism. And any time anti-Semitism shows its ugly face, we have a responsibility as Jews and as leaders in America to say something about it. So does that worry me? Yes, it does. And is that wing growing? Yes. But does that stop the fact that the support for Israel is bipartisan? Not at all. It's still bipartisan. And we just have to fight against those wings of the parties and both parties that are out to stop us. And it's always been like that. And it'll always be like that. And that's why we have to be stronger in what we do. That's actually a good point. And it kind of leads me into sort of, an, you know, again, your work and Robin Neuberger's work and others. Are there people that, we're, that we aren't talking to that we need to be talking to? Are there influencers that we're not reaching? Is there, is there a mistake in how we're going about it? Or it's just there, this is how it is and we have to just pivot a bit tactically? Yeah. So I think there are a lot of liberal, ultra-left members of Congress who are very friendly to Israel and very friendly to our agenda. If I could give a shout-out to Richie Torres from New York, right? He's a very left-wing member of Congress, but he's very solid on Israel, right? And the message that Richie is sending very clearly, along with some, many others of his colleagues, too numerous to mention, is that you could be left-wing and you could be liberal on the agenda and you could still support Israel, right? And 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 I, I think as, as Jews and as community leaders, we have to believe that and we have to know that going forward, those are people that we want to build relationships with. So whereas there's some people who are against our agenda, there are others who, who, who are for our agenda. And let me make one point. Our agenda as Orthodox Jews is not just Israel. We have education issues. We have other local issues. That, that, that support will come from different places. And just because someone's not good on one of our issues, they might be good on another one of our issues. And how you know that better than anyone else. I always tell people I'm a lobbyist, not an activist. I talk to everybody and, and I work with everybody on whatever issue it is. You know, and it's not always the same person. You're right. And it's and, and, and you can be mad at somebody on one thing, but they can be your ally on another one. Correct. Wow. OK, so now I want to ask you a little bit of how you conduct yourself when doing all this. Uh, point blank. Do you wear your yarmulke when you're meeting all these people? I'm I see it now, but <laughs> yeah, uh, even though I'm bald, so it's a little hard. It gets clipped on. But I always I always wear my yarmulke. 
um, when talking to these people. And I learned that um, early on, and I think it's it's only helped me. You know, it's uh, you know, I, I, I it's I've gotten kosher meals in the craziest of places. I, I still remember I was once at a uh, dinner in uh, Cayennesport, Massachusetts, that uh, that Mrs. Robert F. Kennedy threw, and I was honored to be invited as a guest. It was on a Saturday night. And uh, so I stayed in a bed and breakfast in Hyannisport for Shabbos. There was a Chabad there. I threw a Friday night dinner that I had my local caterer friend, Ed Hoffman, flew up from Baltimore. I invited every Jew there. We had about 15 people um, that came to, you know, made the kitchen kosher. And we had a little uh, Shabbos dinner. And then like I normally do, you know, the worst thing to do is to be in a non-kosher dinner and be starving and watching everyone else eat and you can't eat a thing. So Shalashudah's time for Shabbos afternoon, I had my tuna sandwich or my turkey sandwich and ate pretty good, figuring, okay, at least I won't be hungry that night because that night, Saturday night, was his dinner party. And then President Bill Clinton was the guest of honor. So I come and I, I get to the party right after Shabbos. And, uh, I'm, you know, the cocktails, obviously, I can't eat. I have a drink. And as it comes, I sit at a table. I still remember I was sat at Senator Ted Kennedy's table. And a guy in a bow tie comes over to me. He's the manager and goes, sir, are you the ones that asked for the kosher meals? I said, no, I did not ask for a kosher meal. Maybe it's someone else, right, because I had not asked. And he says, no, no, no. Mrs. Kennedy said to look for the guy with the thing on his head, and he's the one that eats kosher. <laughs> I'm very good friends with her, her daughter, Kathleen, still today, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. And Kathleen, just, I'm sure, told her mom that her friend Howard and his wife, Chaya, only eat kosher. So Mrs. Kennedy had a kosher, two kosher meals, not even on my request, shipped in from Boston to Yenisport, where she had it for us. So I forced myself to eat it because she went through the trouble, even though I wasn't that hungry anymore. But there in Yenisport, I had a kosher meal. Now, I was once in India. And uh, the ambassador, Mulford, who was the U.S. ambassador to India through a dinner party, my honor, I was president of APAC at the time. I met with the prime minister of India. I had all the top meetings. And I ate, again, tuna in my room before I went anywhere. Before I went to the dinner party, I had my tuna fish sandwich. Man, I got to tell you how much weight I lost on that six-day trip. But <laughs> as I'm sitting down and the, the ambassador's chief of staff comes over to me and says, Mr. Friedman, she shows me a meal. We flew in this meal from you from London. It's under Kadasya Hashgacha. She didn't say that. I was able to read the, the Hebrew. <laughs> I said, yes, this would be perfect. And even though I had my tuna fish sandwich, I finished everything on that meal because I hadn't eaten more than a tuna sandwich in four days and I was starving. <laughs> but the ambassador, knowing I kept kosher, me not requesting it, them doing their homework, flew in a meal from London for me, which I was able to eat. So wearing my yarmulke has only helped me, has helped my eating, that's the main point, but also helps me being recognized always in, the, in Capitol Hill because I've always worn a yarmulke. And I can tell you one last story of it being recognized is uh, right after President Obama became president, he came to, to Maryland and I was invited to meet with him and I wasn't able to. So Two of my kids had never met him. Two had, two hadn't. And I got them in, in the clutch to meet him in advance. And the way these work is he was giving a speech. There's a clutch, as Harry knows, of 30 people or so. And my two kids were in it. So I, they all introduced my two kids were the last ones. They go, Mr. President, Alex and uh, Gabby Friedman, Gabrielle Friedman. And the president looks and goes to them, any chance you guys Howard Friedman's kids? And they go, yeah, he's our dad, right? Where is he? My son said he had to work today, right? Yeah, I'm sure the president was happy to hear that one. Anyway. 
everyone was thought I was such good friends with the president. But the bottom line is he saw my son Alex wearing a big black yarmulke come in. It didn't take a genius, right? And I wasn't so close with President Obama, but he knew me that he's in, in Maryland that he sees a kid named Friedman with the yarmulke. It must be Howard Friedman's kid, right? And that was it. But the story went around that Barack Obama and Howard Friedman were best friends because he even recognized his kid. <laughs> is it true that he uh, sent you a football that says to Howard from Barry? Is this story true? No, that is no truth. I think he stopped calling himself Barry a long time ago. The closest <laughs> I have, if you look on my wall there, is when I was in the Wall Street Journal with a picture of him and me about Iran. He did send me a, a note saying, uh, Howard, nice to be with you, Brock. Uh, and uh, I was obviously one of his aides did that. So uh, that's how it works there in the White House. Okay, so you, you covered the yarmulke, cover, excuse the pun, but I want to get to other parts of Torah observance. Let's say Shabbat or any other mitzvah. You mentioned kosher, but what about Shabbat? That's usually something that a lot of people struggle with. Has that ever gotten the way? Let's say someone wants to meet with you on Shabbos. What do you do? Sure. I've been many times invited to meet with the elected officials in Shabbos. President Clinton once came to Baltimore in Shabbos, and they invited me to the, the meeting. It was at a downtown hotel. I said, I'm sorry, I can't go because of the Sabbath. They go, no, no, no. We did our homework. Right. We got you. We get you a room in the hotel and you get late checkout Saturday. You won't have to leave till after the Sabbath. And that way you could be there. I said, I'm sorry. You're right. But I don't do political things on Friday night. I don't leave the house on Friday night. That's my custom. And and I stick with that. Okay, well, very good. Um, I want to know if you could also tell us the story, which I know you've mentioned before. About what about uh, I think you had, you know, for those who are not familiar, you come, Howard, you come from a Hasidic background. So I'm sure you've heard of Toameha Friday afternoon. So yes. I, 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 I heard that President Obama wanted to have a Toameha with you on Friday afternoon. How, well, tell Kogel us that on my house Friday afternoon, except we didn't serve Kogel. <laughs> so my two senators, Barbara Mikulski and Ben Cardin, two of the great lions of Prozor leaders, Senator Mikulski, who's retired by now, Senator Cardin, who's a senior member of the Foreign Relations Committee, both one Jewish, Senator Cardin, Senator Mikulski, not, but both top-notch friends of Israel, asked me to have a fundraiser for them. And of course, I was willing to do so. Two very good friends of Israel. We strategized and we wanted to raise a lot of money. And the only way we could raise a lot of money was by having a good speaker. And we decided the best speaker to have was President Barack Obama. So me and Senator Cardin went to work on getting him. And sure enough, after a couple of weeks, they agreed to, that he, the White House agreed that President Obama would come and they'll let us know the date soon. A couple weeks later, we get a call. He could come Friday afternoon, September 17th. I'm making up the date. I don't remember the exact date, but it was a Friday afternoon. And I said, okay. And they said, he'd come for dinner, and, uh, and, but it'll be an early dinner. Great. He could be at your house at 5 o'clock. We'll call for 5, and he could be there from 6 to 8. So it's going to be a full two-hour dinner. He's giving it two hours. I looked up my calendar, and Shabbos came in. Shkia was 7-17. So I said to the guy, that's very nice, but is it possible we could call the dinner for four o'clock? I know it's a little early for dinner, but that way the president will be there from five to seven and uh, that would work out a lot better. And the guy said to me, no, sir, you don't understand. You must not have done this before. The president of the United States does not change his schedule for people. People change their schedule for the president of the United States. So you could change yours. I said, the only problem I have that my schedule was set 3,000 years ago. So it's impossible for me to change it today. The guy thought I was crazy. I explained to him I'm Sabbath observant and I cannot change that schedule. And it must be changed. If not, I just can't do the event. So 
a, a week later, I get a call from Jack Lou, who was then Secretary of the Treasury, recounting what happened after I told the guy this. He goes, Howard, you'll never believe what happened because I have to hear from you what happened. And I told him what I told the guy. He says, well, the guy went to his boss, the political director, and said this nutcase says the president has to change his schedule for him because he's Sabbath observant and the president has to come and go before Sabbath begins. What do I do? He goes, well, let me ask the chief of staff. Two days later, they had a staff meeting, and he asked Dennis McDonough, he said, this guy Friedman, Howard Friedman, you know, uh, says he cannot change his schedule for the president, where the president has to change his schedule. And Dennis, who I knew from his days on the Hill, was a long-time Hill staff, he goes, yeah, I know Howard, yeah, he's Sabbath observant, I understand what he means, let's ask the president if he's willing to change his schedule. The next morning, Dennis asks the president, and the president says, and again, there's Jack telling me all this, and the president says, oh, yeah, of course, Howard Sabbath observant. They even had once had dinner with him in Israel, and we had to go an hour to meet, to meet them because he wouldn't travel on the Sabbath. Of course, change my schedule. Let's do it. And the president of the United States changed the schedule, not for me, right, but for the hundreds of thousands of people, not millions, who keep the Sabbath because he knew that it was important to me because it's important to my tradition, and he changed his schedule, and he was out out of the house at exactly two minutes to seven. He came 10 to five. He left a couple minutes to seven. And the shul started at seven o'clock. And the rabbi wrote, said that Howard, and he said in the magazine article, and Howard came as usual at the same exact time to, to Mincha on Shabbos afternoon. So someone said to me, you came seven o'clock? I said, no, I came 7.05. That's my exact time coming. I'm always five minutes late. But anyway, so... Uh, Yes, that was it. So it shows you that if you if you keep to your principles, even the president of the United States is willing to make changes for you. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I want to change the uh, uh, topics a little bit within this. You know, I know Maryland has a, um, you know, an Israel-focused economic development partnership, you know, the Development Center uh, yep. for a long time now. Um, you know, is, is that something that, that's been helpful, you know, obviously in Maryland and with Israel, but more broadly in the pro-Israel cause? And should, should more states be doing things like this? Um, I, I think it's been helpful for the state. Um, it, I wouldn't say it's been helpful for the pro-Israel cause, although it's good for the pro-Israel cause, but it helps Maryland business. This is done not because we're supporting Israel, because we're supporting Maryland, and we want to bring more business to Maryland. And by having a Maryland-Israel Economic Development Center, which is partly paid for by the government, the state government, partly paid for by the Jewish Federation, because yes, it's good for the it's good, it's good for Israel, it's good for the community, but it's mostly good for Maryland, because two-thirds of the money, I think, if I'm not mistaken, comes from the state of Maryland, because it, it, we now have dozens of of Israel-based companies that have headquarters in Maryland, and it's helping to build business in Maryland. New Jersey has one. Other states has one. It's, it's a state. As, as Israel economy grows, every state should have one, and it helps that state do you know build economic development in its state. And it's, kind of beyond, it's beyond the conflict, beyond the foreign policy issues. It's, it's one-on-one kind of personal relationships you're having. Which is, Correct, think, and it's really a business issue for, for, for the state. That's cool. Um, and on that, well, again, on that same kind of topic, like we, we, we at Ohio Jewish Communities, we, we do missions in Israel for state legislators mostly, um, hoping to do another one in February now if we can get to the country. Um, haven't done one in about two years now. Um, you know, so obviously, again, our, we, we do federal and state stuff, you know, in our advocacy and even some local stuff. Um, is, is the state legislature, is that the right time to grab people, you know, if they haven't been there yet? Um, you know, obviously, APAC takes them once they're in Israel, once they're, once they're members of Congress. You know, but is 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 it good to get them earlier, or is it, is it yeah. or is it too early? Or? No, it's it's never too early. You want to bring both legislators and community leaders. Now, the problem is to bring legislators. Certain legislators are left out because you're picking the ones that you think have futures and going places rather than ones 
the, the, the ones who aren't. And, you know, in Maryland, when we did, we never brought the Jewish legislator and the Jewish guy always complained why we didn't bring him. We said the funders only want to bring non-Jews, pay for non-Jews. And finally, arranged that if he paid for himself, he could come along and he was willing to do that. But the, but the funders were not willing to pay for a, a, a Jewish member to come. Some, some states, I'm sure they are, but this goes back years ago in the, in the way it was done by us. So, um, I think you could bring legislatures and you could also bring community leaders, right? You know, uh, church, evangelical leaders, um, b- uh, black leaders who are going places because not all today, not all uh, future uh, major national political leaders necessarily come from the legislator. Legislature, right. a lot do. And that's why you want to bring some. So I think you want to bring a mix. Is that the same trip or different trips for those kind of people? Like, no, there could be, we, we used to combine them in the trips. Yeah. And it could, you could bring separate trips, you could bring combined trips. But it depends on each community can make their own decision how they think it's best for them and based on how yeah. the funders want to do it also. It's not a cheap thing, as you know. No, it's not. But it's, it's a lot. Of, it's very time intensive. But again, I, we've seen just the, uh, again, obviously people to learn about Israel, but also um, even on the their own legislative, you know, within the, within the, the conversations that go on and the, the relationships that are built internally, I think we help make it more bipartisan in Ohio, you know, because people yeah. spend some time together, you know, out of, out of, out of the Capitol, out of the state house. And they're not dealing with, with, with the, with the hot button issues. They're going to kind of learn. learn. It's really interesting to see. Um, yeah, and I, staff I, sometimes. Right. And I've done this in the federal level when I've gone on bipartisan yeah. trips with members of Congress. And that's always been interesting yeah. to see how, you know, I would say 25 years ago when I first started doing it, they got along a lot better together than they do today. And yeah. we're a lot more willing to, to go than they are today, but still some of them are, 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 you know, are going today. Yeah. Howie, you mentioned um, you want to go on this trip if in February, if you are able to, which brings up the discussion of entry to Israel as we are battling this Omicron variant. Uh, Howard, I want to ask you, I'm sure you saw um, the letter that was penned by Mr. Uh, Saul or Shlomo Werdiger to, um, to Naftali Bennett um, I, w- I wanted to know if uh, either yourself or APAC, is there a position that you would like to um, take or something that you would like to have um, become more addressed regarding? Well, it? I'm not a spokesman for APAC and everything I say here today is just for myself, uh, you know, not, not for APAC. And I don't think APAC would take a position on, on, on that regardless because APAC doesn't take positions on too many things except things going on on Capitol Hill. But uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of myself, I think that you know, and especially you know, re, you know, as part of Beth Medrash Kavoa and a large part of the the yeshiva world who has children learning there and grandchildren there, I think Israel has to take a has a special responsibility to, know, to for their friends who are in the diaspora who have kids in Israel, whether they're studying or whether they're living there, and. And make sure they have a chance to get in when their grandchildren are born. And they have to their, to, to their credit. But recently they've gotten scared again. And I don't blame them for getting scared. But on the other hand, they have to realize all the Americans that are pumping money into their economy, the yeshivas that are there, that are helping to support what's going on there. And they have to, uh, and that's what Saul wrote in his letter. And kudos to, you know, Rabbi Pesach Lerner, and especially Pesach Friedman, who's done an incredible job with Chaim uh, Chesed to helping all the Americans, Tzvi Gluck and David Kushner Amudim, who are t- working tirelessly to get people people in. And they're, they're doing it. But hopefully the government will work closer with these organizations to help uh, Amcha are people across the Jewish community who who need to get it. 
Okay. Wow. And, and by the way, and even Birthright, Birthright sent three buses this year, one tour operator. He used to have 80 buses. We need our Birthright kids to get to Israel, right? And hopefully Israel will work. And they have, to their credit, trying to figure out how to get the groups in and the Birthright groups in. But I think they need to work a little harder on that. Okay. Now, you mentioned Birthright, and I know a lot of people that got uh, passionate about Israel on Birthright. I'm wondering if you are noticing a little bit of a decline regarding the level of passion with younger people, let's say under 30 or so, um, is there a little bit of a decline of, you know, how much they, you know, Jews, whether they're Orthodox conservative or however they identify. Well, the pop, the problem is very simple. The college campus where they're coming off on. Yes. The decline is coming from the college campus. And therefore we have to work harder, right. To make sure that our brothers and sisters on the college campus have an opportunity to come closer to Judaism. And obviously the Wolfson Foundation does that more than ever. And, and, and Hill is working very hard at doing it. Chabad on campus is doing it. And the one place the Jewish community really gets along is on college campus, the Israel, the, what's called the ICC, the Israel Campus Coalition. It, you know, Jews love to fight, but on campus, they're really getting along and they work very hard, very well together. So I think we as a community, and when I say community, it means a broad community, have to support all our organizations on campus to, to help the organizations that work there work stronger with our young people to make sure they have a better experience and that all the hate that's being spewed on college campus is not is reaching their ears, but is not going through their ears. And I, and I hope that can happen. But there's no doubt we're up we're up for a big challenge on college campuses, and I think that's what's causing it. Howie, I want to turn it over to you before I get my last question in, but go ahead. Sure. No. So, yeah, so actually, I mean, you may have seen to me that uh, Governor DeWine here in Ohio actually sent a letter to all 111 college university presidents in Ohio, public and private. Um, focusing most, some of on the anti-Israel piece, but mostly on anti-Semitism on campus and asking the university administrators to really step up and on the physical safety side, of course, but also on bullying and on, on, on ways to make people feel safe on, on the campus. And that, that there's obviously stuff that, that our elected officials can do. And then there's stuff that we can, as a community can do, like you mentioned. Um, but that brings me to my, my last, my, my last question from my mind is you brought this up a little bit or you touched on it in, in, in your, in what you said just now, you know, Kind of like, you know, Hasbara, sometimes it gets a bad rap. You know, people can say, let's change our Hasbara. Let's, let's, let's fix our messaging. Um, or the messenger sometimes even, you know, depending on who's in government and whatever else. But, um, you know, what is the best message you've kind of seen for, on, from the, on the pro-Israel front in, in all the years you've done this? Is it something you've ever seen that to, to change somebody's mind or open somebody's mind in a different way that someone was opposed, they changed their mind or they were, were ambivalent and became a supporter? Um, I, I, I understand the last part of your question that someone became a supporter from what? I'm sorry. I think, I think someone was whether you're ambivalent about Israel or they were anti-Israel even or, or anti-specific policy and then they, someone I was doing advocacy with them and, and they sure, heard a Jesse, message that resonated Jesse with them. Yeah, but I thought that was your question. I'm sorry. Yeah. Senator yeah, Jesse sure. Helms, right, who was for 20 years a non-supporter of Israel. And I, there's a man named Bobby Jacobs in Staten Island, right, belongs to the youngest of Staten Island. He did a lot of business there in North Carolina. And he made a business relationship with some of Helms' people. And once he got to know Helms well and supported him because of business reasons, he went to bat take, trying to support trying to lobby Helms for Israel. And he convinced Jesse Helms to take a trip to Israel, which he accompanied him on, right? And in that trip, Jesse Helms changed his mind and spent the last 10 years of his career in the Senate as a supporter of Israel. One person, 
was able to make that difference. A guy named Bobby Jacobs, may he, may he be well, who is an elderly gentleman today in Staten Island, New York, because he believed he wanted to make money, which is hence why he made a relationship with <laughs> Senator Helms. But Israel was always first on his agenda. When he had an opportunity to act, he did. He took Senator Helms to Israel and he changed around Senator Helms. There's a few different examples like that, but that's a that, that's the one who was the most prominent because he was head of Foreign Relations Committee and an incredible change that Bobby made. So it was, a, it was but, but it was relationship based. You're saying it wasn't a message per se. It was more to well, build the relationship. First. The relationship allowed him to deliver the message. But it was the week right. in Israel that changed Jesse's mind. Bobby was not yeah. able to change it for the four years, many a couple of years before that. He had the relationship. It was yeah. Bobby. In asking Jesse to go to Israel, and then Jesse hearing the message in Israel that changed his mind. Gotcha. So, is it is it going to Israel? Is that, is that the best? best that message, is probably message? the best way to get someone to change. Doesn't always work. I know plenty of people went to Israel and and it did not change, but it, uh, it it's generally usually the best way. We had some, my first mission we we did here actually we went back in twenty fifteen. We had somebody come, a legislator, and they they said when, when they got there, they, after a few days there, they said to us, I didn't realize the truth was so complicated. I didn't know enough. And now that I, I have to be an ambassador for the truth when I get back, which wasn't necessarily always with quote unquote, what we wanted, but it was far from where they had been. Yep. hundred percent. Okay. Thank you. So in closing, first, uh, I want to again, thank you for joining our show. And I, as a closing question to you, Howard, it says on your bio also that you currently serve as chairman of the board of Beth Medrash Gavoa in Lakewood, New Jersey. And we actually just had Aaron Cutler on Colo, to, was it two episodes ago? So uh, it's nice to see not just um, someone from the inside, but also someone uh, like yourself from the board, the outside. Um, but you mentioned you learned in Air Israel. So I take that as you're not a uh, you're not an alumni of Lakewood. So then how did you get into it? And why did you decide to take the most powerful lay position of a place that you didn't go to? So, you know, it's very interesting. I'm someone who supports Torah all around the country and wherever I can. Many years ago, Rabbi Aaron Cutler, who's an incredible visionary leader of the Jewish people. I knew him as little Aaron from camp. Right, he was a year or two older than me. I knew him from the camp days, and we had a casual relationship our whole lives. And when he joined the yeshiva as CEO, he asked me to help on the political end, and I started helping them on the political end for the yeshiva because I wanted to support Torah, and of course, don't contributing a little bit. I had, had an event in my house for the yeshiva, and after helping them a bunch, they asked me to join the board of the yeshiva. And once they sucked me in. I couldn't be stopped because when I traveled the country, when I was president of APAC, every community I went to, yeah, I went, I saw, I went to Columbus, I saw near Israel had a coal there, and near Israel had one in Atlanta, and near Israel had one in Cincinnati originally. But everywhere I went, Torah was being built by Lakewood Yeshiva in America, Beth Medrash Gavoa, right? And I said to myself, I didn't go there, but how do I not want a part of it? So I started getting more involved in raising money for the Yeshiva, the spread of the Torah. And one thing led to the other. And one day they got really desperate and they couldn't find anyone else to be chairman of the board. And they came to me and they asked me. So I said, okay, I have to do it. It was really Shimmy Glick's fault, the the great legendary Balstaka Shimon Glick who forced me into it. And, uh, and I'll never, I'll always forgive him for it, but I, uh, but sort of, and I've had the great, great, 
privilege to work with people like Hagayin, who are Makhil Kotler Shlita, and the other Rosh Hashivas, who literally give day and night for Torah. And I see all these boys, all these guys who go across the country and really dedicate their lives to spread Torah in America. So I try to do my little part to help with that. Right. So we're both crossbreeds, I guess you could say. I went to Narysville yeah. for uh, for for high school. But I was in Lakewood the last six but, years. But in all due, it, 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 even though I never went there, I have three generations of my family who studied there. I had two uncles who studied there um, early on. I have I had brother-in-laws who are there. I've had many nephews and nieces there today. I have two nephews there. My brother's son is there and my sister's son is there. So, uh, you know, I, I have uh, I have many. Uh, I've always had generations of my family there. How could you not in the largest yeshiva in America that has 7,500 plus Talmudian students? Right. Six, 6,500 married, 1,000. Uh, uh, well, it changes daily, obviously. There's a wedding, but it's <laughs> generally about 70. Now it's about 7,200. In the beginning of the semester, I'd have to look it up. 6,200 and change married and about 12 to 1,300 single. So it generally goes between uh, 1,050 single and 1,300 single, beginning of the, the Zman, the semester, to the end, as they get married. Yeah, Aaron mentioned on our show that uh, that all, Lakewood also became some sort of like an epicenter for healthcare, that Hamed was the largest vaccination site in the region. Was that ever part of uh, BMG's work or just kind of came out randomly? Yeah, well, listen, uh, BMG started Chemed, you know, put up millions of dollars and really access its line of credit and, and its personal guarantee to start Chemed. And it's really Rabbi Aaron Cutler, whose vision started Chemed and uh, on behalf of the yeshiva. So we become that because of the talent it's become. And, and Chemed has done the health, th- that type of health services that other towns who aren't as cohesive haven't been able to do. But, you know, with, with Rabbi Aaron Cutler's leadership and, and, and the town's cohesiveness, we, the town, we started something like Chemed, and uh, Chemed has gone to great heights. Yeah, that's, no, that's great. We, uh, we had the privilege to welcome Aaron here in September, and uh, we just saw him, was it now two weeks ago in Florida? I have to say, Howard, I was wondering when, when Gary spoke, uh, Gary Torgo spoke um, about that golf story. Um, I couldn't help but wonder, were you at that meeting also? And did you end up going golf with President who's, Obama? Who's Gary Turgo? So, <laughs> Gary Turgo. My dear friend, Gary Turgo. I actually was not invited to that meeting. Do you know why? Because I was invited to the meeting six weeks earlier. Uh-huh. And I was there. Gary was there, too, at that meeting. Uh-huh. And unfortunately for me, or fortunately for me, I got into a fight with President Obama because for 10 or 15 minutes we fought. I was the only one in the room who criticized him on Iran. Most of the quote-unquote Jewish leaders in that room said, oh, you're doing a good job, Mr. President. And that was Gary's first time in the White House, meeting with the president. That was my many, many time. So I had no problem standing up for my, for, for my community and fighting with the president and telling him why I thought he was wrong. And to his credit, he took it very good. But his staff did not take it so good. So I was banned from the White House afterwards. For nine months, I wasn't invited. I used to be invited every month to the White House. I was banned from the White House. And I understood from some friends that I was no longer welcome in the White House because they thought I didn't treat the president correctly. Well, you know what? I treated the president correctly because my job is that I was very respectful, but my job was to stand up for my people. So the next meeting, 
Gary had to, had, had to do it. And I, I think he did a very good job, but uh, he didn't have the relationship with the president that I had because I knew the president since he was a state senator and I had no qualms going toe-to-toe with him and he had no qualms with me doing it either. But some people around him, obviously, did, who, who were more position-based, did not like that. And I was very proud, very proud, that I was banned for the White House for, for nine months. And when they invited me back, they invited me to some second-tier event, and I said, no, I didn't go. And it wasn't until a couple months later when they invited me to what I call the Tier 1 event that I agreed to go back. And I ended my going back again because I still had a responsibility to the Jewish people. But I, I don't need another invitation to the White House. I'm not involved. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not like everyone else. The first couple of times, I didn't get excited. And I have a picture on my wall with President George Bush, and I was pretty excited as a 27-year-old sitting around the table with the President of the United States. Don't get me wrong. Right. And I've been there many times, but like everything else, it wears off after a while. And thankfully, at that point that I prepared for hours with that meet for that meeting. And I was because I'm not such a smart guy. Right. And compared to President Obama, who's a very, very smart guy, I I really prepared and he knew it as well as I did. And for him, it was Iran was one of many issues for me. It was my issue. And I literally spent hours and hours preparing for the meeting. So I I think I, I, I my job was there too fight for my people and fight for my community, my general Jewish community. I, th- I hope I did that. And uh, that's what I'll continue to do at any opportunity I have. It's a little bit of a hypothetical question, but do you think, you know, putting his staff aside, do you think he could have been swayed? Uh, no, he believed he was right. He really went back point by point and he believed in his heart that he, what he was doing was the right thing. He was not trying to hurt Israel at any step of the way. There was a true disagreement on what was the best way to control Iran. And he believed he was right. I don't, I don't believe in that step. Now I could bring up some issues I had at the UN at the end and, you know, with, mm-hmm. with the president, but in terms of Iran, he believed what he was doing was right. And what was the best interest for America for sure. Right. Cause his job was to end ultimately probably for Israel, but his job was not, to just do what was best for Israel. His job was to do what was best for America. Right. And, and your job at that meeting was to do what you felt was best for the Jewish people. So correct. Include and America. And yeah. I disagreed with him on what was best for America. Right. right. And because of our ally Israel. Oh, so you're not taking the standpoint that you only rec- you know, represent Jews and Israel. It's no, I don't represent Israel at all. I only represent Jews. I don't represent Israel. I represent American Jews and what's best for the U.S.-Israel relationship for U.S. and Israel mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Right? I know sometimes it's not necessarily what's best for Israel. Right, right, right. No, that's great. Wow. So this was this was this was very exciting, and we're very uh, thankful and appreciative that you came to our came on our show. Uh, I see that your wife's a judge, so maybe the next request. I go to your better half. We already had we had a judge on a couple of weeks ago. She's much better. You know, Thursday was her last day as a judge. She retired from the bench after 21 years. Today is her first day in her new job. She works at President Biden appointed her the Justice Department, where she's director of criminal justice uh, engagement and something else. I did not so know that. Okay. The, the invitation Department. is on its way. Okay, I'm not sure she's ready to do podcasts yet. Give her a month or two to get settled in Washington, and then she'll see where she's at. I'll tell you who to Newberger that we got your wife before uh, before we got Anne, and we'll see if that could speed the. Well, the Anne is incredible. If you get Anne, more power to you. She's busy saving our country because those terrorists are coming after us in cybersecurity. And they're coming after my companies, and uh, but that's that I'm not as worried about. But they're coming after our hospitals, and they're putting lives at risk. So Anne's job is in- incredibly important to save American lives. Wow. Besides awesome. the same, my business culture, which I care about, but the lives are even more important. Wow. So, so, so many people in Baltimore 
Orthodox Jews, Torah observant Jews are making such a Kiddush Hashem on a, uh, on a public platform. So more power to you guys. Hashem should bench you and your family. The women are a lot better than the men. That's for sure. <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> Amen. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank thanks. You. Take care. Bye, Howie. Bye, Ellen. Bye. So that was some way to end. My wife was just appointed by President <laughs> Biden. Uh, did you know that? I did not know that. No, no that, that's very, very recent. And that's great. I mean, for many reasons, obviously, it's great. But a lot, a lot, a lot of Baltimore Jewish community people are are, are really I mean, obviously, you know, Silver Spring always has people, and the suburbs right. have, but Baltimore has a lot more now. The, the Jewish liaison for the president is in Baltimore. It's really interesting. So what was your highlight? What were some of the things that stuck out? I, I thought the way that he goes about it, again, I've, I've, I, got, I got to see some of it up front, you know, in personal and in, in, in previously, but to hear him talk about the way that he goes about his advocacy um, with nuance and, you know, um, I think, I mean, I, I thought the story about, you know, how people treat him differently because he, he, he respects himself, quote unquote, and he has certain right. observances and, Again, from the Kennedys to the to the to, to the president, I think it was really amazing. Um, and it's something that we again, I've certainly seen it on different levels also, but it's really an amazing thing to see um, at the highest levels. But I also I thought the way that he's able to, you know, have the have the compartmentalization of you know we can have a friend on this issue and an enemy on this issue, and we can have someone who's you know, change their mind. And we live in a culture now, you know, this Twitter culture of, you know, you know, of, of everybody's mad at everybody and everybody's screaming and yelling. And, um, you know, you're either with me one to a hundred percent or, or you're my enemy. You're, and I'm, you're, you're a traitor to the cause. You know, um, I thought that was really, I mean, again, I, I you know, I, it's just how we try to do our work in, in our organization, but, you know, it, it was really, I think it's important people to hear that and see that, 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 you can have people can change their mind. They can make mistakes. They can they can they can make amends. They can do chuba. They can um you can even again you can even change their their, their principles in some level. Um and that even if they don't change their principles, we can work with them on this issue, but not on this issue, and that's also okay for the community. Like the way he said, you know, I'm, I was here with, with the resident, I was fighting with him, and then nine months later I came back and still did my work. I mean that, that's a, that's a that those kind of relationships are important to have. Right, and, and I love how he didn't give up. You know, he took someone I forgot the name. You know. Uh, 20 years after not supporting Israel, but the, the trip did it. I mean, I love the fact that he didn't give up after all those years. Uh, yeah, that was an amazing story about Jesse Helms. Senator Jesse Helms, an amazing story. And again, that, that person, like, just show you again, the, the people who are in this, the, the, who were in it for other reasons can really have, have an influence. You know, that was the famous story, Harry Truman and, and, and his business partner, a Jacobson, but just people can really have that opportunity you know, to, to have an influence, you know, um, they, 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 they're put in a space for some reason. You know, I'm sure that person didn't think I'm going to have business in North Carolina for, for 30 years so that I can have a relationship with a guy who one day will be, you know, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and one day will, I'll take him to Israel, you know, but like it was sort of like he was put there and, you know, he worked it. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm curious, you know, you and I are going to be on our our next episode, we're going to be talking with, hopefully Jason Greenblatt, which is going to be exciting. I'm curious if we're going to pick up on a similar work ethic of, you know, zeroing in on, on the issue at hand and not letting past or future things get in the way. Um, I'm, I'm curious if we're going to see some overlap or he's going to be taking a very different approach. What's your feeling on that? I mean, I think on, on the stuff that he's been that he's known for, you know, the, the Abraham Accords kind of stuff, I think it is. It was, it was, it was really able to look at things in, in a new way and, Again, look at things. Again, this is this is what we're focusing on. This relationship issue. This this 
game changing issue actually really, you know, but, 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 but this, this thing, we're not worried about other, other pieces. Uh, we're not, I'm talking about, you know, this country or that country or this other thing or that other thing or this negotiation, you know, let, let, let's figure this thing out and see what happens. And I think, I think it's, you know, again, obviously, you know, Howard has been doing this for so many years, as he said, and he's, you know, he's self-effacing and, and humble, but he really is an expert in many ways, obviously, and mm-hmm. has many, many relationships that he can call upon. You know, um, Jason came out obviously very differently. He came in with, with obviously with someone's with, with the president's with President Trump's you know trust and 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 backing, but he came at it with without any of those relationships and you know without any of those that 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 official background and he kind of was just um, just what he, what he knew as being you know a jewish person i guess and right. kind of involved again tangentially almost and then it's kind of interesting to see how that works yeah I, that's the thing that struck me the most was like you know not just him but also um jared kushner like these that that, that wasn't their industry before all of this no it wasn't you know? it wasn't i i once wrote about it in a, in a column and i got some pushback but i and i i, I really uh you know i i think that it's interesting they, they, they were able to kind of come in and not that they didn't ask advice from the experts, not that they didn't, they didn't, they didn't mm-hmm. get briefings, other things, but they weren't really wedded to sort of like what had always been, you know, you could say, well, it, well, it can't be done. They said, well, why, why can't it be done? You know, and they kind of like, they went about it a different way and they, they, you know, I, I won't say they, they, they broke things, quote unquote, but they, you know, they, 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 they broke free of, of how it had always right. been done and they tried a, di- a different path. They weren't, and I, and I guess I'd be curious to hear this as a mechanic. They, they weren't afraid of failure on some level. They wanted to took a risk and maybe it would have, maybe it wouldn't have worked, you know? Um, but uh, it's kind of interesting. I think it's, yeah, they, they want to do that. And again, and, you know, Jared Kushner and others, again, they didn't have the background per se, but they had this, this vision and this interest and they were willing to try things out without kind of saying, you know, well, we tried this 10 years ago or 20 years ago and it didn't work. You know, well, they didn't know about that or, or they didn't care about that enough. So it was interesting. Yeah, I, one one of the greatest teachings I, I was taught um, in, in community work development is no doesn't mean no. No means no right now. So, you know, sometimes like in davening, you ask Hashem and you didn't get it, you could daven again. No was the only then. It can now it could be different. So who knows? We'll see. That should be a lot of fun. So, Howie, this was a great yeah. experience. Thanks for doing this with me. And uh, Thanks for having yeah. me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, and we're looking forward to our next one. All right, so you take care and stay safe. Too. And we'll talk soon. Thanks. To listen to all Colote episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Colel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.